It was his efforts that had led to this. The visit of the Tour de France. Bringing Le Tour to Valence de Gare was equivalent to hosting the Olympics. They gathered early because the stage finished early. Stage 12A of the Tour, 148 kilometers from Tarbes, was expected in Valence at around 11.30 a.m. But that wasn't the end of it. Monsieur Bellet and Valence had won the lottery, for as well as an arrivée, they would witness a départ. After two hours' repose, stage 12B, 96 kilometers to Toulouse, would roll out of the town. However, something strange was going on. At 11.30 a.m., there was no sign of the Tour de France. At midday, still no sign. This kind of thing did happen. After all, the schedules drawn up by the tour organisers were based on educated guesswork. But they were at the mercy of the riders' legs and heads, not to mention the wind. A block headwind could add an hour, easily. By 1pm, with still no sign of the peloton, confusion and the first stirrings of frustration and annoyance had replaced the excited anticipation that had galvanised the town not just on the morning of July 11th, but on the days and weeks leading up to that day. Finally, at 1.15pm, the tour's advanced vehicles appeared. The riders would be just behind them. This was it. Excited anticipation immediately returned. Any questions could be answered later. Roadside vantage points, effectively reserved hours earlier, were reclaimed and defended. A buzz engulfed the town. In the next ten minutes or so, the hundred riders would appear. Perhaps the peloton would be preceded by a small breakaway playing cat and mouse, or even a lone rider. Or perhaps the peloton would arrive en masse, swaying, jostling and heaving into the straight for the most spectacular finish of all, a bunch sprint. But when the riders did finally arrive, two hours behind schedule, the finish envisaged and fantasized about in the weeks leading up to this moment did not materialize. The peloton arrived altogether, but far from heaving into the finishing straight, the riders moved at walking pace. And then, 100 metres before the line, they stopped altogether and climbed off their bikes. What followed resembled a funeral procession. At the head of the pack was the rider in the distinctive blue, white and red striped jersey of the French national champion. Most people's gaze naturally fell upon him. He was stern-faced, strong-jawed, and quite clearly full to the brim with righteous anger. He was, of course, Bernardino. A little Napoleon, he was immediately dubbed by some, but at five feet eight inches, Bernardino was a veritable giant compared with Napoleon. And here, in Valence, he did resemble a giant, his presence and air of authority defying his stature, age and experience. Eno was twenty-three. It was his first Tour de France. As the crowd's confusion turned to restlessness, Eno's jaw seemed to clench tighter. His resolve stiffened. He had struck a deal. When I move, you move, Eno told the other riders. Pushing his bicycle, Eno began walking slowly toward the line, and the others followed. Howls and whistles began to be heard. The riders stopped again. Some began talking to each other, joking, laughing, putting on their caps perhaps as a response to the crowd's reaction, as a way of hiding. One rider, Jan Ras, unfolded a newspaper and began reading it in a self-conscious gesture. But Eno stood motionless, unflinching. 
His reaction to the crowd's unrest was to tilt his chin marginally upward. In fact, by doing nothing, he ensured that he, not Russ, was the center of attention. Though Russ was one of the biggest names in the sport, the cameras lingered instead on this impressive, impervious, audacious, stubborn, statesmanlike Tour de France debutante. The picture of Eno, standing at the front of the peloton, leading the protest, has become an iconic image. But the frozen snapshot doesn't convey the whole truth. It's the moving footage that tells the full story. It proves that Eno held that pose for minutes. As well as registering his protest, it is as though he is consciously cultivating his own myth of pride, stubbornness, and strength. His self-assurance and certainty are striking, made more so by the contrast with those around him, who, like children forced to stand in a line and be quiet, seem easily distracted and begin to fidget and talk, joke and laugh, or, like Russ, read the paper.